The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. And we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. Coming to you from the heart of Texas, this is Accounting Matters, the go-to podcast for accounting and finance professionals from your friends, Adam Bark. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm Nicole Harger, Embark's National Quality Managing Director. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, the one and only Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. Adam, welcome back Thanks. to the studio. <laughs> Glad to be here. And I know we've got a, a timely topic that uh, I think it'll be very interesting for our listeners, uh, especially those in the U.S. that are likely to be pulled into these rules we're going to talk about today. Yeah. So we all know sustainability is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Um, while those of us here in the U.S. patiently await the SEC's climate rule, it turns out the state of California beat them to the punch. So I know we've briefly touched on California's climate accountability package in our AM Now episodes back when they were signed, but I thought we would spend today's episode um, diving deeper into these bills. And specifically, you know, if you are a private company that typically starts to tune things out when we talk about um, anything related to required sustainability compliance, um, don't turn down the volume just yet. Yeah, especially, you know, like you said, a lot of people, SEC rule, climate rule, and those, those private companies tend to tune out. And I will say we also have a blog that we've we've put out on the rule that we're going to talk about today as well. So for those that, you know, like to read as well as listen to us, uh, be sure to check that out as well. Awesome. All right. So before we dive into the specifics, do you mind um, giving us a little bit of background of kind of where these bills in California are stemming from. Sure. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, like you said, no one's surprised that California is the leading state when it comes to sustainability and 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 thinking green. You know, it's it tends to be a leader historically in the space and and so on topics like emissions and climate change and risks and opportunities associated with them, it's 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 no surprise that they were kind of the the first state to come forward with actually mandated reporting requirements in the yep. U.S. So uh, the state really pioneered kind of um, climate related accountability um, going back to kind of the mid 2000s. So back in 2006, the California Global Warming Solutions Act was created in the state. And that really was kind of the first step of taking bold um, actions to help address the growing concerns around climate change and then ultimately corporate responsibility for climate change. Um, as a result of that act back in 2006, the California Air Resource Board, also known as CARB, was created. And, and that'll be a, an entity to remember because they are a key component of the climate um, bills that we're going to talk about today. And that board is really just established to help, you know, protect the public from the harmful effects of air pollution um, and help develop the right programs and actions to help fight climate change within the state of California. Uh, fast forwarding to this year, so there were two uh, Senate bills that were introduced, um, Senate Bill 253 and Senate Bill 261 related to cl uh, mandated climate reporting. Um, that ultimately passed uh, the California Assembly back in kind of the end of September. And then 
in early October, the governor of California, Governor Newsom, signed those bills into law. And this is kind of collectively known as the Climate Accountability Package um, and really kind of put forth, like I said, that first set of mandated reporting here in the U.S. Yep. And so high level, let's focus on the the two Senate bills first. Um, You know, these two bills really require both U.S.-based public and private companies that meet certain thresholds that we'll dive into here in a minute um, to disclose scope one, two, and three greenhouse gas emissions and submit once every two years climate-related risk reports to CARB. I'm going to laugh at that because I like thinking like carbohydrates, (laughs) you know. Yeah, no, I think that's... (laughs) Uh, important that you do highlight, like, so unlike, for example, the SEC proposed climate rule, which is obviously focused on SEC registrants, uh, these California bills do apply equally to public and private um, entities that do business in the state. And we'll, like you said, we'll get into some of the requirements of how you get scoped in, but um, a little bit more pervasive in like who potentially could be subject to the reporting requirements here. Um, I also want to add that the bills do not explicitly also exclude foreign entities from the requirements. So what I mean by that is there is not an exception on the ultimate parent of a business entity. So if you have a U.S. subsidiary of a non-U.S. company, so a, you know a non-U.S. parent company that meets the criteria that we'll talk about today for each of the bills, um, you would still be subject to the scope of the reporting. Um, and then I would also just add that, you know, if you're going to look up these two Senate bills, so Senate Bill 253, which is the corporate, I'm sorry, the Climate Corporate Accountability Act, and then Senate Bill 261, the Climate Related Financial Risk Act, uh, they're very short, so mm-hmm. you, can, you can honestly get through them in probably a short 10, 15 minute read because uh, they're just mere pages in length, yep. which unlike the SEC's proposal was <laughs> hundreds of pages. And so... Uh, naturally, because they are very brief in nature, there are a lot of questions, I think, as people are thinking through about how you apply some of these requirements um, that aren't necessarily answered. And so that's where CARB, you know, is kind of appointed to help provide more detailed guidance as we get closer to kind of the implementation and the requirement dates of each of these bills. Yep. And so those are those are two great points. Thanks for adding those in. Um, So let's first dive into Senate Bill 253. This bill requires U.S.-based companies doing business in California that have over a billion dollars in total annual revenue to disclose its annual greenhouse gas emissions in accordance with guidance provided by the Greenhouse Gas Protocol. Um, I think it's important to also lean into what is meant by doing business in California, as that may seem vague. Yes. Yeah. And then just circling back to kind of what you said, I think there are uh, early estimates that over 5,000 entities are likely to be impacted by Senate Bill 253, kind of based on that scoping criteria there. But but just to go back also to, you know, what you said about doing business. So that is a key term that a lot of people are like, well, what does that mean? It sounds very vague on the surface. Um, and I would agree. Yes, mm-hmm. it is a little vague. And it's it's vague in the context that the climate bills themselves don't explicitly define like what it means to be doing business mm-hmm. in the state of California. Yep. 
Um, but luckily there is existing California tax law where this term has been used before. And so by inference, I think a lot of people are looking to those, uh, the tax code in California where this definition is outlined. So the California Franchise Tax Board actually defined the term of doing business. And it's essentially if an entity meets any of the following. So it's, do they engage in any transaction for the purpose of financial gain uh, within the state of California? Um, are they organized or commercially domiciled in the state? Or do they meet certain California sales, property, or payroll tax, or payroll, excuse me, specified amounts, um, which do get adjusted annually for inflation and things like that, but there are specific thresholds there. And if you trip any of those, you would be considered that you are quote unquote doing business as well in the state. Okay, so the bill actually does specify the reporting for the three types of emissions generated. Um, and those of you that are familiar familiar with sustainability reporting, um, you will be familiar with them. So in case, however, you are unfamiliar, let's dive into those three different types real quickly. Um, scope one covers emissions, um, meaning all direct greenhouse gas emissions that stem from sources that a reporting entity directly owns or controls. So an example here would be emissions resulting from gas that is used in a reporting entity's fleet of vehicles, right? So it's a direct emission from the reporting entity itself. Yeah, and so two more scopes of emissions here outlined in the GHG protocol. So scope two emissions are those kind of indirect emissions that really come from energy that's purchased and used or produced. Um, so examples here is just, you know, the electricity that's generated that's needed to operate a facility, a warehouse, a building um, of a reporting entity would fall into this kind of scope two category. And then you have kind of the, the catch-all category or where there's a lot <laughs> you know, for lack of a, a better word, I would say a lot of controversy is around scope three. And I say controversy just because of the complexity of it, yep. um, not necessarily by the nature of it, but your scope three emissions, which really, you know, relates to emissions across uh, an entity's full value chain. So um, upstream and downstream activities that are defined um, in the GHG protocol, um, you know, thinking about things, emissions from your suppliers or your vendors or potentially your customers or employee travel or things like that fall into specific categories within scope three. Um, those would, you know, also be subject to the reporting under the Senate bill. And then I will add, you know, we've talked about, you know, scope one, two and three emissions on past episodes of accounting matters. So if you kind of look for any of our kind of ESG focused, um, conversations that we've had in the past, you know, definitely probably do a little bit more of a deep dive into there about um, things to consider, um, best practices, common pitfalls, things like that. And we'll continue to probably release a lot more information yeah. on this because I yep. think, you know, particularly with it as it relates to scope three, uh, there are a lot of challenges, like I said. And so, um, you know, as companies begin to navigate um, kind of assessing scope three emissions, you know, we'll definitely be having further conversations around that. I look forward to that. <laughs> um, okay, so if I'm one of our listeners right now that is in scope for this requirement, you know, I might be starting to sweat a little bit thinking about how you how I would even begin to gather all of this data. And so since you are the guru, I thought um, it might be helpful if you spend just a few minutes kind of talking through 
what companies should start to do. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. And I, you know, I think before I kind of get into some, some key steps, I mean, there's there's no like prescribed, you must do it this way, right. but there is like a common approach that you can kind of break it down into. But there are, you know, the, the threshold we talked about, it's, you know, billion dollars in revenue. So it's designed to kind of pull larger companies in and particularly on the, on the public company front, a lot of those, you know, larger public entities may have already been voluntarily doing some, some of, this of this stuff yep. um, as it relates. And they may have been using, you know, maybe, maybe not fully in line with the GHG protocol, but inference from different things from the GHG protocol. So hopefully for a lot of entities, it's maybe just kind of fine tuning and maybe putting a little more, you know, rigor around some of the reporting that they've done historically, but there also are going to be a number of entities, particularly if you think about the private entities that are pulled in that, you know, like you said, maybe sweating a bit more <laughs> because they haven't historically done a lot. So, right. um, but when you think about kind of steps, I guess, for calculating emissions information and disclosing on that emissions information, you know, one of the key things here is really establishing your organizational boundaries. And so the GHD protocol um, actually outlines specifically how you can think about organizational boundaries. And that's important because, you know, when you're thinking about scope three, for example, like where do you stop with your scope three kind of outlook? And so that organizational boundaries can help define, you know, particularly what what types of emissions might be considered scope three versus ones that could be considered scope one, depending on if you own control, et cetera, um, those emissions or not. So establishing those organizational boundaries is kind of a key step there. Uh, next is figuring out kind of your method for collecting that data. Um, so obviously emissions disclosures are very data-driven, uh, very critical element, in, in, and there's a lot of data to gather. Um, so really understanding what is going to be your approach and method for collecting that data. Um, and this includes trying to then develop the right processes, you know, procedures, tools, um, templates that you might need to start pulling that data together, especially if you're a very large multinational mm -hmm. or very decentralized organization, it can be pretty challenging there. Um, same with developing internal controls, because I, I know we'll get into it in a little bit here, but there's assurance components attached with this. And so, you know, part of um, obtaining assurance from an auditor is going to require, you know, an assessment likely of your kind of internal controls around the information that you're reporting on. Um, but once you kind of have all that data, then you're, you, know, you can com compile it, review your facility data um, by the different sources, things like that. Um, there's likely going to be gaps in your data because it's just the availability of information. And this is, you know, inherent today in, in emissions reporting. There's a lot of estimates that are used, um, especially when you think about um, trying to pull emissions information, maybe in kind of the fourth quarter of the year, maybe just the timeliness of getting some of that's right. going to require companies to have to figure out um, estimates for how they can assess where they may have gaps in the data. Um, then it's looking at emissions factors, right? So depending on the sources, the types of emissions that you're, um, you're kind of cataloging there, you know, selecting the correct emissions factors, applying those emissions factors to kind of get that CO2 equivalent, um, which is what you'll have to report under calculating those emissions. Um, and then, you know, moving forward with kind of your reporting there. Yep. Sounds so, like a lot. So I think, I mean, and there's probably a lot gonna... more of those steps that could be like 
easily broken down into more things like, you know, developing right. an inventory plan of emissions and management of that inventory <laughs> going forward and things like that. There's there, there's a lot to do. And I, you know, to your point, there's a reason why a lot of companies that are maybe newer to this type of reporting are starting to kind of feel very overwhelmed, overwhelmed um, or just kind of, you know, feel like they're drinking from a from fire, fire hose, hose. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it sounds like company, you know, companies are going to need a teams of people that are going to be focusing on this. Like this is not just a one person type responsibility to, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a, a it very, is. And, and you see that with, you know, especially in larger public organizations that have already been doing a lot of this. So they, you know, they likely have sustainability teams, yep. um, you know, people that are kind of living and breathing in the space, but there's a lot of companies that potentially could be pulled in that don't have that infrastructure in place. Yep. And so it's, you know, it's figuring out who is the right person. And, you know, because a lot of yep. this involves, you know, disclosures and reporting and now potentially assurance and controls and auditors and things like that, you're seeing a lot more of like the, the finance team um, being kind of pulled into the fold, maybe in, in tandem with the sustainability team right. or legal or whoever else, um, very cross-functional in, in, in most, most scenarios, but, you know, definitely seeing more responsibility being pushed on to kind of, um, existing finance teams to help own this, especially where companies don't have that infrastructure in place. Yep. Okay. So don't want to spend too much time, like diving into the details of the, you know, specific greenhouse gas protocol. Want to kind of turn and focus a little bit more back on on um, the bill itself. So we did cover the disclosure requirements. Let's let's talk about timing. Um, why don't you tell our listeners, you know, when companies are required to start complying with Senate Bill two fifty three? Yeah. So there is a little time, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it depends what you define as little, but so reporting entities that are subject to it will be required to publicly disclose their 2025 information for scopes one and two emissions beginning in 2026. Yep. So, you know, not that far off, but it's not like, you know, we need to start tomorrow. <laughs> yep. Um, but, you know, I would say companies need to start preparing probably tomorrow. <laughs> um, and then from a scope three perspective, it's 2026 information uh, being reported on in 2027. So a little bit more time to phase into scope three, which makes sense, just like we talked about, given the complexity and some of the um, the rigor that's needed to truly evaluate and assess and gather information on scope three emissions. Um, and then I will say, Unlike the SEC's proposed climate rule, there was a phased-in approach for a lot of the emissions reporting. There is no phased-in requirements here. So regardless, as long as you just kind of trip those thresholds so that, you know, that billion dollars of revenue and then the doing business kind of criteria yep. there, um, all of those entities have the same kind of reporting timeline. Um, and then I will say, starting in the 2027 reporting, that those scope three emissions, they, they're required to be disclosed 180 days, you know, no later than 180 days, I should say, after the reporting of the scope one and two emissions um, for the prior fiscal year. So there is a little bit of some leeway on that scope three kind of emissions reporting. But like, like I said, it's 
um, you know, they there's a, a sentiment there that, you know, it's still something you need to kind of get ahead of because it is going to take a lot of time. Yep. Yep. Okay. So we've touched on who Senate Bill 253 applies to, what the requirements are, when the bill becomes effective. So the next, you know, the fourth W um, is the where. So listeners may be wondering, as I did when I first um, read, you know, about the bill. Yep. Where reporting where we in, yeah, where are we putting this in information? Um, and as part of the bill, the regulators actually put themselves in charge of the where. So CARB um, is going to be responsible for creating and administrating a um, you know public digital platform mm-hmm. um, to house these reporting entities' disclosures. Yeah, no, I think that's important. That's you know understand where this information is going to go. It is public, right? So you know people will be looking for it and will have an ability to access it um, and assess it. But I guess that kind of, you know, introduces the next question, which is the how. And what I mean by how is, you know, how are regulators or other stakeholders going to use these disclosures and be able to rely on them? Um, And we've kind of hinted at it already in our conversation today. But, you know, as they were drafting these bills and as these bills kind of worked its way through through the assembly and ultimately passing into law, um, they do require that assurance component like we talked about. And so, you know, a qualified independent third party assurance provider is going to have to essentially assess these disclosures. And so scopes one and two that we talked about are kind of the first wave of reporting that's going to come, you know, through in 2026 on 2025 information. Um, And, you know, I guess one thing that's kind of unique here is that the assurance component actually starts the same year, like in the first year of reporting as well. I know the SEC rule had a little bit more of some leeway there in its proposal, but under the California law, um, limited assurance level is going to be required on that first year of reporting for scopes one and two. And then that will naturally transition into reasonable assurance over time. So the bill outlines in 2030. So give you know a few years to kind of get your, you know, <laughs> get everything ironed out as best as you can to really elevate to that reasonable assurance engagement. But it, it will transition to a higher level assurance over time. Um, for scope three admissions, I will say there is a requirement that limited assurance will be required. And originally the bill is kind of specified this would begin in 2030. So kind of when scopes one and two transition to that reasonable assurance yep. is when kind of scope three would then be required to have limited. But CARB is, um, they essentially have the ability to assess that. So they're mm-hmm. going to continue to look at that. And I think by 2026, they're going to kind of make that determination of whether that um, the feasibility of having limited assurance in 2030 yep. is there, or if maybe there's a, a need to amend or postpone or whatever they decide to do. But um, more to come again, it's kind of like those back to my original statement that there's a lot of questions on implementation and op, kind of like operationalizing these bills. Um, that will be ironed out by CARB as they kind of move forward. Yeah. Okay. So I do think that was a good overview of Senate Bill 253. Let's um, move on to Senate Bill 261, which is also known as the Climate Related Financial Risk Act. So Senate Bill 261 requires reporting entities in scope of 
um, this bill to disclose publicly a climate-related financial risk report once every two years. And so this report should include climate-related financial risks based on the financial report of recommendations of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures disclosures, sorry, um, also known as the TCFD, mm-hmm. or on an equivalent standard such as um, the International Sustainability Standards Board Sustainability Standards. So um, this report should also include, in addition to that, measures that the reporting entity is taking in order to help mitigate climate-related financial risks. And the bill also defines kind of what is a climate-related financial risk. And like I said, it really just kind of mirrors what the TCFD outlines. Um, But for those that may not be familiar, it's essentially where there's a material risk of harm to the immediate or long-term financial outcome. So kind of thinking full-time horizon here Mm -hmm. um, that are, you know, explicitly due to either physical or transition risks. And these, you know, can include a number of different things. So like it could be risk to corporate operations, provisions of goods and services, your supply chains, um, employees, health and safety, um, institutional investments, consumer demand, shareholder value, or just kind of broader economic (laughs) health, you know, like it's, it's kind of the full gamut there. So, uh, lots of different things that could qualify as being a climate related financial risk. Um, and that don't want to pivot off too far from the specifics in the bill, but, you know, probably also helpful to just kind of reiterate that, um, you know, the bill does take into account the TCFD's recommendations for climate related financial risk disclosures. Um, so just kind of want to hit on what are those kind of key categories. And so the TCFD essentially has four kind of pillars of all their different recommendations, um, where their disclosures all kind of fall under and they're in these kind of four distinct categories. So you've got disclosures related to governance, uh, disclosures related to strategy, uh, risk management, and then kind of the last one is disclosures around, you know, different metrics and targets. Yeah. And so the idea here is to ensure that, you know, investors and others understand how reporting organizations think about and assess climate related risks and opportunities. And so really, as it relates to governance, the TCFD, Uh, recommends reporting entities disclose the board's oversight of climate-related risks and opportunities, as well as management's role in assessing and managing um, climate-related risks and opportunities. And then from a strategy perspective, the TCFD recommends reporting entities the climate-related risks and opportunities the organization has identified over the short, medium, and long-term. The impact of climate-related risks and opportunities on the organization's you know, business strategy and financial planning. And then finally, the resilience of the organization's strategy kind of taking into consideration different climate-related scenarios. Simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just to wrap up kind of the last two pillars. So from the risk management element, you know, the TCFD is gonna recommend reporting entities really just describe the organization's process for how they identify, assess, and manage any climate-related risks um, for that organization, you know, including how these different processes are integrated and just their overall kind of risk management, you know, just kind of what you would expect for any type of risk management type disclosure. Then just to round us out on the last pillar around metrics and targets, so the TCFT recommends reporting entities, you know, disclose metrics used by the organization that, you know, are 
necessary for them to assess their climate related risks and opportunities, you know, also in line with their strategy and risk management process, you know, disclosures maybe around scopes one through three GHG emissions and related risks and targets used by the organization to manage climate related risks and opportunities and performance against those targets. Yep. So number of things there that also kind of fall into that final bucket. Okay, so I think that's a pretty good overview of the types of disclosures that will need to be included um, in reporting entities climate related financial risk report. So let's turn the discussion back to Senate Bill 261 and the specifics there. It's important to note that companies um, impacted by 261 do differ, right, than Senate Bill 253. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Senate Bill 261 is actually going to apply to a broader range of companies. So I think we spoke earlier that maybe around 5,000 entities were expected to be kind of pulled into the GHG um, reporting for Senate Bill 253, because um, that was based on a billion dollar revenue thresholds. Mm -hmm. um, Senate Bill 261 actually cuts that in half. So it's actually a $500 million threshold um, that if met and also kind of meeting that doing business criteria that we talked about um, would pull uh, those reporting entities, those companies into the scope of these, uh, you know, climate related financial risk disclosures. So um, I know we talked about that revenues also, again, apply to all revenues um, generated by the reporting entity, not just those in the state. Yep. Um, but I would also like to clarify that the revenue threshold is actually going to be based on the entity's prior fiscal year. So when you're thinking about, you know, which <laughs> what time period are we using to evaluate whether or not we trip these like dollar thresholds here, um, it's really looking at that entity's revenue for the prior fiscal year. And another kind of hole in the bill is, you know, what is that revenue based on? You know, it doesn't explicitly state that it's you know, revenue in the financial statements, you know, like mm -hmm. you, you know, under US GAAP or IFRS if applicable. Mm -hmm. um, but we would expect CARB probably to clarify that yeah. in kind of the application of these laws um, and would presume that it's most likely going to be kind of your, your financial statement revenue yep. numbers used for those thresholds. So, all good points there. Um, you know, another difference between the two bills is that under Senate Bill 261, reporting entities will post their climate-related financial risk report um, directly on their website. Um, a similarity between the two bills is that reporting entities within the scope of Senate Bill 261 actually have until um, 2026 to be compliant. Yep, that's right. And entities must prepare their climate-related financial risk report on or by January 1st of 2026. Yep. Okay, so one thing we haven't touched on yet um, for either bill is so what happens if companies do not comply with them? Um, I think I already know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you think it's a good idea for companies to not comply? <laughs> uh, so I would argue no. Um, and you know, there's there can be a number of different reasons. Um, there is a penalty yep. for not complying with the bill. So there's a fine that you know would be assessed, which would be public information. Um, I think there's also 
potential, you know, outside of just the fine, you know, some companies might view the, the penalty as nominal to them, but like there could also be broader implications. So is there a reputational risk? Yep. Um, how does that impact other stakeholders, um, for why or why not to comply with (laughs) what is a law in the state? Um, so, you know, a number of different things, especially when you're thinking about just corporate governance and, um, you know, having that oversight and making sure that you're kind of in line with the requirements of, of the, the state laws in which you, where you conduct business. Um, you know, I, I would, I would argue no. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so it's safe to say companies should start prioritizing, um, starting to figure out how to become compliant under both of these bills. I know there's one more we kind of wanted to touch on before we sign off assembly bill 1305. So do you want to touch on that one real quick? Yeah. So there's, I think, you know, the, the big Senate bills kind of got, well, one, I think the whole climate California climate package probably caught some people by surprise, but for people that maybe were following it a little bit closer, I think people were paying particular attention to those, the two bills we just kind of walked through, but there is a third bill that was, um, also kind of swept in with the the passage of those other two bills. And this is Assembly Bill 1305, which relates to voluntary carbon market disclosures. Um, and I do want to highlight on this one before we kind of wrap today, because unlike the other two bills where, you know, we're, we're talking about potentially 2025 information yep. in 2026, um, this voluntary carbon market disclosure law is actually effective beginning in January of 2024. So at the time of this recording, mm-hmm. that is, you know, literally a month away now. Yep. Um, so right around the corner. And so it's going to require information and updating information on an annual basis under the requirements of the bill. So just real quickly looking at the bill itself and what are some of those disclosure requirements, there's really kind of three distinct sets of disclosures that may be necessary. So it really kind of just depends if you check the box for any of these three different categories. So the first one relates to entities that are operating in California that make any net zero emissions claims or carbon neutral or carbon neutral product claims or have significant GHG emissions reduction claims in California. So if you do any of those three things, you're going to be required to disclose information of how that claim was determined to be accurate Mm -hmm. um, and actually accomplished and how progress towards that goal or, you know, measurement or whatever um, is being achieved. So, you know, verification of, you know, an entity's emissions or looking at certain science-based targets that you've set and verification of those, or if there's any specific sector type stuff you're um, you're applying to your business, going to have to provide information there. Um, and then also whether or not that information, um, you know, there's any independent kind of third party verification of those, mm-hmm. those claims that are made. And, you know, all of these are really just trying to get around, like eliminating this perception of greenwashing where mm-hmm. people are making all these claims and saying all these things, cause it sounds great and it looks good to a lot of stakeholders, but you know, as you kind of peel the curtains back, like how much merit is there. And mm-hmm. so really trying to add more transparency there. Um, the bill could also apply kind of to the second category of you know disclosures. And this is gonna relate to companies operating also in California that make um, emissions claims and also buy or use voluntary carbon offsets in California. 
Um, so if you meet that, you'll be required to disclose basically a lot of information around those voluntary carbon offsets. Mm -hmm. So like who's the seller of the carbon offset or the offset registry or program you're using. Um, you're gonna have to identify, you know, the project's you know number so they can be looked up the name if it's listed in the registry um, the offset project type so talking about whether those offsets were derived from actual carbon removal and avoided emissions some combination um, and where kind of those programs are located so the sites and then any specific protocol that's used to estimate emissions reductions or removal benefits you know by those programs um, and then again, if there's third party verification of these claims, you know, rather, you know, kind of disclose like, you know, what is that verification and provide some more context around the validity of that information. And then the last set of disclosures, just to wrap up for us, is going to relate to, again, companies operating in California. Um, and this is kind of on the flip side. So those that market or sell voluntary carbon offsets in the state. So they would be required to provide details about the carbon offset project. Um, including any protocol that they use, the locations, again, of where those project sites are, um, if there's any established standards that are used for the projects, any independent verification, validation, et cetera, um, around emissions reduced or carbon were removed on an annual basis. Um, accountability measures will also be necessary. And then just information around like data collection and methods used. Um, to reproduce and verify the number of emissions redu reduced and removal credits used. So um, a lot of, you know, just more context, more more transparency just around the use of these different programs mm -hmm. and people that make claims in the state just to like add more meat to the conversation and really give people confidence that entities that are, are making these claims or engaging in these types of activities are, you know, being truthful and transparent yep. about what they're actually doing. Yep. Okay. So one quick question before we sign off. Um, on this bill, you talked about third-party verification, and then on um, Senate Bill 253, there's discussion around. You know, eventually there's going to have to be some limited assurance provided on the information that's being disclosed. Is it audit firms that are going to be doing those? verifications and limited assurance or are there other third parties that can do that so there's too? no requirement for assurance under the assembly bill but if you are getting third party independent verification you would disclose that information to um, you know or the lack thereof um, as part of your disclosure okay. there but it's not it's not specific to like um you know, it's not as explicit as it would be like in the in the different Senate yeah. bills. Yeah. And I guess the last thing I would <laughs> add just on this assembly bill is that uh, there is no existing framework. So like we talked about Senate Bill 253 is you know, essentially the GHG protocol, mm -hmm. more or less. And then TCFD is used largely for the Senate Bill 261. Like yep. this assembly bill is not based on an existing framework. So um, you know, just kind of keep that in mind and also just kind of where this information would rest as well. It's kind of similar to Senate Bill 261, where you would have to publicly disclose it on a company's on website. website. All right. Well, I think that was a, a lot of good information um, for today. So, you know, if you'd like to continue the discussion with us, um, please don't hesitate to reach out to 
Adam or myself on, on LinkedIn. And until next time, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.